0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. I am Jen Crouch and I'm a senior director here at O'Neill and Associates. And I have the pleasure of being joined by my vice chairman, John Cahill, who heads up our Federal Relations practice, and a former Congressman from West Virginia, Nick Rayhall. Thank you all for joining.
1: Happy to be with you, Jane.
0: Great. Well, you all know John Cahill, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about Nick Rahal, but he served as the ranking member on House Transportation Infrastructure, and prior to that was the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee from 2007 to 2011. He was first elected in 1976, served 19 terms in the US House of Representatives, and I thought this was a fun fact, recognized as the youngest elected, longest serving member in the history of the House. That's pretty good. But your story didn't really start in 1976. I understand that you actually started as a staff assistant for then US Senator Robert Byrd. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, Jen. I worked uh, summer jobs from uh, college in Washington. The most memorable summer was the summer of 1969 when I was a mail carrier in the US Senate. And uh, I had the seniority row, so to speak, the fourth floor of what was then called the old Senate office building before the current names. And I had uh, some memorable names, uh, JW Fulbright, Hubert Humphrey, Fritz Hollings, Ted Kennedy, (laughs) I delivered his mail that summer. You may recall what happened that summer, 1969. Well, some of us older people like John and I would. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that was the uh, summer of Chappaquiddick, and I was uh, Senator Kennedy's mailman during that uh, period. Okay. And uh, it was something, I'm, I can't even repeat what all was written on the outside of the envelopes that were addressed to him. Wow. But, uh, so anyway, fast forward uh, after graduation from college, Senator Byrd brought me back to D.C. where I served in the Democratic cloakroom, working for all the Democratic senators at that time. And that's where I first got to know Senator-elect Joe Biden, right Mm -hmm. after uh, he was elected in November of 72, Uh, drove Senator Robert Byrd up to Wilmington, Delaware for his wife's funeral.
0: Oh, really? Tragic
1: tragic wreck uh, before he was sworn in. And uh, I'll never forget that. Senator Byrd and I were standing out in a cold rain on a November night, waiting to pay our respects. Senator-elect Biden at that time heard we were outside. He came outside and said, Senator, don't you and Nick wait out here in the rain? Come in ahead of everybody. Senator Byrd said, that's all right, Senator, we'll wait out here in line like everybody else. And uh, we did, and Senator Biden's never forgotten that uh, since that day. And when he came to the House, or the Senate rather, uh, I was in a Democratic cloakroom and I was his go-to man in the Democratic club room because he knew my closeness with Senator Byrd. He would call me every morning early, early on my special line wanting to know when the first vote of the day was because Senator Byrd would tell me. So he could stay and have breakfast with his kids in Wilmington and, and stay as long as he could before catching a train down to uh, Amtrak down to DC for the first vote of the day. Mid-afternoon he'd call me every mid-afternoon wanting to know when the last vote of the day was so he could catch Amtrak back to Wilmington and have dinner with his kids. That went on during the early part of his career in the US Senate, and he never forgot it. He told a joke about it on the campaign trail when he came into West Virginia campaigning several times. uh, It was quite a day, a lot different today though than back then, but uh, that was my history before being elected to the House of Representatives.
0: Your your education.
1: Yes,
2: (laughs) was it ever. And so, so,
0: John, when did you cross paths with uh, the congressman?
2: I, I think in a hit or miss way in the early 80s, I had worked for Speaker O'Neill uh, in the late 70s and then went out and, and took on, talk about infrastructure, took on representing the Massachusetts Port Authority in terms of all the aviation uh, and seaport issues. And then the next thing you knew, I had the Transit Authority calling, and then the next thing I had, the Mass Water Resources Authority calling, and that was was about, uh, uh, Nick will remember this, that was about the cleanup of Boston Harbor, which was a pretty contentious financial issue in the mid-80s, if you recall, Nick. Yes, it was. You know, we needed desperately to get some help from the feds, and the only way to do it was to go through uh, the Clean Water Act, which meant to go through the, uh, what was then the uh, Public Works Committee. And, um and so that so we had overlapping things I suppose you could say and then um, all that stuff occurred in the 80s with the big dig and with the water resources uh, stuff and commitments made uh, to to the transit authority because of the big dig you know it, it, if you're going to build a highway project like that you have to do some some uh, uh, outreach financially to transit entities and so we had to do that so Nick of course, was on the committee and was growing in seniority, you know, just every two years there, just moving along and moving up. And um, I'd say it was probably 1990 or something like that, that we connected. And um, what, what, you know, one thing as you know, is that one reason we connected is that, that I was asked to help out with the, uh, what was then the Tren project, when it was just a concert Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico and San Juan. It was, it was a concept, but it was a very well-founded concept. And so I went to uh, uh, Mr. A. Hall, and I said, here's, here's our dilemma here. We, we were pursuing uh, federal funding for a portion of this uh, project. Uh, and as you know, Puerto Rico is not a state. They have no voting members in the Congress at all. Uh, they had some nice folks. Remember Paso Romero, Nick? Yes, I do. Yeah." He was yes, there. Absolutely. He is a good guy. He was there for a while as, as the commissioner, former governor, but they had no vote. And uh, so I guess we put our heads together, Nick, is what we did. And uh, you were doing the National Highway System bill, I believe, which uh, had a lot of different moving parts. And uh, Nick was kind enough to tee up Tren Urbano as an eligible recipient of federal uh, money. And that really got it going. And uh, and then later, when uh, Nick was doing a much larger bill out of uh, the highway, the Surface Transportation Subcommittee, um, that's when we went full bloom into uh, funding Transurban. And I have to tell you, the other thing uh, Nick did is he supported statehood for the Commonwealth, overtly, overtly.
1: Yeah. Uh, that came under my uh, Natural Resources Committee, where I was a strong supporter of statehood. Yeah. Uh, but I recall the Tran Obano project very well, John, and, and all the work that O'Neill and Associates did on that. Carlos Pesquero, who was uh, yeah. Transportation Secretary. I still have pictures of our trips to San Juan. Uh, yeah. I have pictures of Big Dig Project too. my personal <laughs> business, to that project with Tip O'Neill. Yeah. And uh, that was when he first put the strong on arm on me. (laughs) He was my first speaker in 1977 and uh, that was very dear to him and uh, I was on transportation infrastructure. He put me there and he expected my support for the Big Dig project and I did (laughs) and I have pictures of it and I'm going through a lot of my archives as we speak and have run across pictures of that project and and you, you mentioned the transportation bill you know, back in those days, uh, we baptized the word intermodalism. That became the buzzword of infrastructure. Uh, early, I think it was early in the '80s, when uh, Bob Rowe was chairman of the committee, Jim Howard, Normanetta. Yeah. Minetta, yeah. And, uh, our surface transportation bills, all oh, for many years thereafter, always had the word intermodal in it yeah. somewhere. ICE-T, the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act, uh, T21, the Transportation Efficiency Act. Uh, uh, the intermodal was in there somewhere. That became the buzzword of transportation yeah. throughout the 80s and, and 90s. And uh, now we just take it for granted as much as we do a, a highway somewhere. But intermodalism right. changed uh, policy in this country, changed the way we move goods around this country and, and more efficient on time delivery, and it involved uh, all the modes of transportation, railroads, truckers, uh, and uh, it truly has has uh, paved the way, <laughs> excuse the pun, for a more efficient transportation policy in this country today.
0: Intermodal, Well, wow. now I think we say multimodal like it's no big deal, right? Multimodal, yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> yeah, right. exactly, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But
1: I know with interest today uh, the revival of serious efforts to reinstate earmarks. Those were a oh, that was the bread and butter of every transportation bill we did in my years on TNI. I mean, earmarks were literally the engine that drove many bills to final passage in the House of Representatives. I can recall we used to pass transportation bills like 400 to 10 or 12. Uh, and those 10 or 12 in opposition would be like John Boehner, who would get up and say he was against pork, but who would be in the first line to get first in line to get pork whenever it was being handed out? <laughs>
2: that was John. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it was always in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, and then of course, under President Obama, the earmarks were uh, obliterated, done away with, I guess, And uh, now there's uh, talk about reviving it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, what's that? No, go ahead. Yeah, I've always been a strong believer in earmarks. Uh, Very strong believer. I've supported him, of course. I had Senator Robert (laughs) Byrd as chairman of appropriations during a lot of my tenure in the House, and uh, it was uh, easy to be for earmarks when he was doing what bringing home what he was bringing home to West Virginia in the way of projects and federal. Uh, But, uh, you know, if you do away with earmarks, in my opinion, you're you're doing away with your constitutional responsibility as a member of the House, which is the power of the purse. And to my Tea Party friends, I, I bring that up every time. I say, well, you believe in the Constitution. The Constitution gives the power of the purse to Congress. If we do not have earmarks, we're giving that power away to the executive branch. Uh, regardless of who's president of the United States. He or she has the right then to spend that money. And do you think they know our district better than we know our district? I don't think so. And uh, earmarks can often be the spark that lights the fire for other forms of uh, payments to help a project along. Mm -hmm. It can be the spark that that gets private foundations involved, it gets the private sector involved, that gets state and local governments involved. Uh, by, with that seed money known as the earmark, it can be the, the start of many a worthwhile project uh, that can uh, be good for not only the people of the congressional district from whence it's sponsored, but for the nation as well. I used to always say, you know, to those people from Michigan uh, that wanna get to Florida, uh, the, the and the Floridians that want to have Michigans come down, how do you think they're going to get down to Florida in their cars if they don't have good roads in West Virginia to travel over to get there? That's how they get to Florida from Michigan <laughs> and the Great Lakes states, is through West Virginia. So, you know, if we have crummy roads, the Floridians are not going to get their tourists. Yeah,
0: intermodal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: well,
2: I did see that it's been endorsed now uh, Nick, uh, the reintroduction has been endorsed by Rosa DeLauro uh, as chair of appropriations. Very obviously, good. Obviously the, obviously, the leadership is pretty positive about doing it. So, and the Senate, of course, is relatively silent as they've always been on earmarks until yeah. until their turn comes.
1: <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> and they I have all to the- tell, if <laughs> we have time, a real funny story on earmarks. Sure. Yeah. Don Young, my dear friend, now the Dean of the House of Representatives from the state of Alaska, Republican from the state of Alaska, who gets tagged with the infamous bridge to nowhere uh, that gives earmarks a bad name. Well, he was in my office late one night, we were in voting. His office was right across the hall from mine. Uh, He came in my back door. Uh, He went to my beverage closet that he knew where it was. I didn't know where it was and we had a few beverages. (laughs) And I had known that earlier that day, the Republican caucus in the House had a meeting and earmarks was on their agenda. And the debate was going pretty favorably. Some shocking people in the Republican caucus were speaking in favor of it. And right before they had were going to have a vote, Don Young gets up and speaks in favor of it. Everybody just went silent and walked out of the room. There was no vote. Well, so that night when Don was in my office, I told him what I heard going on. And I said, Don, I heard when you got up, the discussion stopped, and it was going favorably until you got up and spoke. And he said, yeah, I'm for earmarks. And I said, I know that's the problem. You should have just kept your mouth shut <laughs> and <laughs> kept quiet, and we might have remarks reinstated today. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, "Oh, okay. Well, next time I won't say anything."
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Next time be quiet. Wow.
1: He was. He was the reminder. He was the of reminder. The bridge to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> nowhere. Yeah. But you know, you know, as long he- as they're scrutinized, and God bless them, Jim Overstart put in a process when he chaired the TNI committee that really provided for scrutiny, public transparency. The project has to be on your website. You have to list everybody that's involved with it, it has to have the support of all the local groups, the Chamber of Commerce, the labor groups, everybody. Uh, you have to certify and sign in blood that you don't benefit from it personally or no supporter of yours, financial supporter of yours benefits personally. And as long as it's scrutinized like that, then, you know, the American people can decide.
0: Well, they do uh, welcome can it.
1: can decide whether that project should go forward or not most part they will be in favor of it.
0: Oh definitely definitely and I think to your point it really does help projects that otherwise can't get off the ground and we've been missing that the last 10 plus years and I think a lot you know there's a lot of grant programs out there but some that just don't fit for the needs that entities have there's just not federal funding or a program that exists so earmarks are a wonderful way to to jump that and to your point get that other outside uh, support. So I think we're all eagerly waiting to see the process and embracing of that. And it's been, it's been too long and they get a bad rep and they're an excellent, uh, an excellent tool.
2: So, you you know, the other thing uh, folks, when when they did away with the, when they did away with earmarks, yeah, they pointed to the bridge to nowhere and, and some other stuff, maybe excessive and not, not really transparent, but, but the thing is they did away with earmarks to not-for-profit institutions. You know, all the colleges, all the universities, et cetera. I mean, yeah. could, could be food banks for that matter. Exactly. They all suffered. They all suffered and no means to raise that money, you know, uh, or at least to start. Yeah. I mean, we used to do some of those things in planning and design to launch a project, right? Exactly. Because maybe the entity didn't have the million bucks or whatever it was to do planning and design. Well, once they got it, then they could go out and raise the money to do the construction so yeah. they, they really did a disservice to a lot of people oh
1: yeah, yeah. we had health clinics in West Virginia mm-hmm. that suffered in rural areas of our nation that they have no access to the big hospitals in the mm-hmm. big cities and, and they rely upon those small rural health clinics and uh, they're yeah. often funded by earmarks and they took a big hit still are it's still are, right yeah yeah
2: yeah and then um, so Nick I was gonna say I know Jen was with Jen would do this anyway but so, tracing back all those years and the number of surface bills that you worked on and surface bills you actually, you know, produced, how do you see this current, well, enormous uh, push for an enormous infrastructure bill? I mean, it's way beyond just surface, I suppose, isn't it? So, what, what are your yeah. thoughts now? on, on...
1: Uh, the, the country is in desperate need of a massive infrastructure bill. Uh, And there are so many segments of transportation uh, that are not getting what they need in any of these COVID bills that are going through the Congress as we speak. And they really need it in order to survive and in in order for our country to uh, have an effective transportation policy and you know, I forgot the figures, but when you invest in infrastructure, you're creating jobs. Mm-hmm. When you create right. jobs, you're creating taxes that help reduce our deficit. Uh, and of course, we all know the big elephant in the room. How are we gonna pay for it? Yep. Well, that's always the question. How are we gonna pay for it? I remember being asked that question once uh, in the mid nineties or maybe latter nineties. And I said, well, all options ought to be on the table. Before I finished talking to the reporter, John Boehner sent out a press release, there goes tax and spend, Hall wanting to tax us to death. Again, liberal Democrats wanting to tax us. When all I said was all options ought to be on the table, which yeah, it includes a gas tax, it includes revenue uh, enhancers, it includes public private partnerships, it includes bonding, it includes tolling, it includes all the above. And then we're not gonna have enough So uh, people are so afraid of that gas tax, which I don't believe has been raised since 1993, Mm -hmm. not even for inflation, if I'm still correct. That's right. In in my memory. Uh, And we, we know that the highway trust fund is really, it's a trust fund. For every dollar that goes in there and gas taxes that we pay, it ought to come back out in transportation, not go to deficit reduction, not go to anything else. It ought to come right back out of that trust fund for transportation related projects. And if you do that, in my opinion, the American people, if they see that their taxes are coming back into their area for transportation improvements, they could very well support a gas tax increase. Mm-hmm. West Virginia, West Virginia, my home state, uh, back a decade or so ago, raised the state gas tax twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, rural poor state like West Virginia. Uh, and mm-hmm. here these big states, uh, at least they used to, like California, have a constitutional amendment prohibiting a state mm-hmm. gas tax increase. I don't know whether they still do or not, uh, but If you're honest with the American people, and you show them that this money is coming back to benefit their transportation needs, then, you know, you you should not be so afraid of the gas tax increase.
2: I saw that, to your point, not just on the gas tax, but there are other sources of support. You would not necessarily have to rely solely on the gas tax. No. There are other sources of potential funding. I saw that even yesterday, just a separate issue, but the Secretary Buttigieg uh, said uh, in a very affirming way, we really need to take a look at uh, doing this by, by debt. That is that money is so cheap right now, so inexpensive, that you could basically bond a good portion of the cost of this uh, investment, You know, string it out 20 years, 25 years, Mm-hmm. you'd be, you'd make money, you know what I mean? By growth in the economy, sure. you'd be ahead of the game. So I think people need to think a little more creatively here. And if it takes four sources of funding, you know, four different sources, albeit, go, go for it. Yeah, go for it.
1: Remember the late Jim Howard, chairman of TNI at one point, who had a proposal, Nickel for America? Yeah. Uh, which was a nickel increase in the federal gas tax uh, I think earlier. I'm not sure over what time period, but uh, he, he took the bull by the horns.
2: Yeah, he of course he often took the bull by the horns, didn't he? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had the 50, he had the 55 mile an hour speed limit, in uh, w- a justifiable kind of way for himself because there were issues between New Jersey and New York that would, uh, you know, come up about this, the, both the speed limit and other issues related to driving, if you will. But um, but I think that nickel, Nick, I think he was looking for 10 years of that or something. It was like he man, wanted it to go up to 50 cents, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: right? Or go up by that, 50 cents. You're right. You're right. I, I've forgotten, but now you're reminding me. That's correct. Yeah.
2: Man, oh, man. People are like, really? <laughs> 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 well, we probably should have done it. Yeah.
1: Would, yeah, yeah, but, but you're right, John, you know, the gas tax alone, we cannot rely upon any one revenue source. It has to be a combination of all the above, yes. all the above, and then we're not going to have enough. I mean, we are so far in the hole as far as our infrastructure that needs repair, bridges, God forbid, on the verge of falling down all over mm-hmm. this country, uh, potholes that people break axles in and can go fish in in many states are so big. Uh, it's just, it's just a shame uh, that when we stack up against other countries, especially even developing countries, uh, we like far behind. I used to have those figures, but I don't recall them off the top of my head anymore.
2: Yeah. Well, they're not
0: good either way. So don't worry about it.
2: <laughs> you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct i mean and, and uh, i'm just hoping that even if they have to do this the hard way through reconciliation again i don't you, you know but we, we have two bites of the apples you know nick on reconciliation yeah because they didn't do one last year if they have to do it that way so be it just so be it yeah you know? totally agree you know it, it, we're overdue anyway so jen yes <laughs>
0: well now i just I thought we could could end there, but I would love to reconnect with both of you maybe in a couple weeks. Certainly, we have upcoming on February 23rd. I think right now is the tentative date for the President's address to Congress. We'll learn more about his infrastructure package then, and certainly, you know, we'll hopefully have a relief package done by March 14th, which is the deadline for a number of unemployment provisions that will be expiring. And Uh, We'd love to continue the conversation with you, Congressman, as you look at all the ways to how do you pay for it, what's included, innovation, energy. I think everything's on the table, and it's um, a major piece of very expensive legislation, but needed.
2: Yes. (laughs) Well, uh, if if my friend Nick is up for it, I'm up for it. So let's do it. Great. We'll we'll book it (laughs) again. Great. All right. We'll book it again. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Dad. Talk soon.